You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 5, given in Berlin on the 27th of October, 1908. Today let us start from simple forms of pain, its primary manifestations. If you cut your finger and sense pain, or bruise your hand, or if it is chopped off, the experience of pain involved will be the simplest, most primal kind, and our observations will start here. If we ask modern psychology professionals how they would explain this simplest type of pain, their response nowadays is rather droll. They have made a strange discovery that pain cannot be explained except by adding a sense of pain to the diverse senses, such as smell, sight, and hearing. With this they say we sense pain, just as we perceive light through the eyes and sounds through the ears. We experience pain because we have a sense of pain, they say. Everyday experience does not give us any grounds for assuming such a thing. Yet this does not prevent a scientific outlook founded on pure observation from assuming it. It just goes ahead and invents a sense of pain. Let us not take any further notice of this, however, but instead ask how such a simple primary pain arises if we cut our finger and how it is sensed. The finger is part of the physical body which contains the substances of the external physical world. Each finger is permeated by the etheric and astral body, excuse me, and astral part of the body that belongs to the finger. What is the task of these higher aspects, the etheric and the astral? The physical structure of the finger, composed of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and so on, these cells assembled in it, could not be arranged as they are if the active agent underlying them, the shaper and developer, the ether body, were not present. This originally worked to develop the finger, so that its cells came together to compose it, and now also sustains the present composition of cells, preventing the finger from dropping off and decaying. This ether body permeates and fills the whole finger with etheric activity, occupying the same space as the physical finger. But the astral finger is also present. If we have a certain sensation in our finger, a sense of pressure or some other perception, the finger's astral body naturally mediates this, for sensation resides in the astral body. The connection between the physical, etheric, and astral finger is by no means merely mechanical, however, but always alive. 
The etheric finger invariably permeates the physical finger with warmth and strength, continually working to configure its inner parts. What interest does the etheric finger take in the physical finger? It is concerned to put the latter's parts with whose smallest particles it is connected in the right place and into the right relationship. If we now imagine making a small slit in our skin, thus wounding it, this incision will prevent the etheric finger from arranging the finger's different parts in the right way. The ether body is in the finger and seeks to keep the latter's parts together while the mechanical incision we have made sunders them. Thus the ether finger cannot do what it ought. It is in the same position as we would be if, say, we had made ourselves a tool to use in the garden, but someone had broken it. We would then be unable to do the work we had intended and would be deprived of the chance to do it. This, quote, being unable, close quote, is best summed up by the word privation, and it is this inability to act or intervene that the astral part of the finger experiences as pain. If we chop off a hand, only the physical hand is chopped off, not the ether hand, and this ether hand is then unable to act any longer. The astral hand experiences this huge deprivation as pain. Thus, in the interplay of the etheric and astral, we acquaint ourselves with the nature of the most primitive, primal pain experiences. This is how pain arises, in fact. And it lasts until the astral body has accustomed itself to the fact that this activity is no longer being carried out in this part of the body. Let us compare this with the experience of pain in Kamaloka. There we are suddenly deprived of our whole body. It is no longer present and the ether forces can no longer act. The astral body senses that the whole can no longer be organized and it yearns for the activity that can only be carried out by means of the physical body experiencing this privation as pain. Every experience of pain is a suppressed activity. Every suppressed activity in the cosmos leads to pain. And since activity must frequently be suppressed in the cosmos, pain is something necessary there. However, something else can occur. Through privation, processes and such like, the hand can, to a certain degree, be held back from its distinctive vital activity so that its functions are suppressed. This is the case, for instance, if a person starts to scourge or chastise himself, thus bringing bodily organs that were formerly in full, lively activity to a certain standstill. Then, in the case of the hand, for instance, the astral part withdraws from the ether hand. The latter then has an excess of forces. It has lost its mission, despite still having the capacity to engage in its usual activity. Despite suffering no actual wound, it has lost its purpose. If a person does this, he starts to sense excess powers in the astral body and recognizes the availability of these excess powers. Previously, he will say, 
I used all my strength in regulating the physical body, but now I have constrained and tamed it. In doing this and no longer using up so much strength or energy, the astral body will feel this excess, these excess forces as bliss. You see, just as suppressed activity causes pain, so accumulated strength gives a sense of bliss. The astral body's capacity to do more than it was inherently predisposed to do means bliss for it. This awareness of brimming energy, which can rise up in producing what is available to be governed from within outward, since it is not used by the external body, signifies bliss. What is the purpose of scourging the physical body, as this is practiced in monastic orders? What does this mean? Here less use is made of the functions of the physical body, which are thus quietened so that some capacity is retained in the etheric body. Let us picture firstly a person who has lived in self-imposed privation and who has gradually succeeded in making his physical metabolism act calmly and quietly without calling upon the ether body much. And then someone who likes to eat as much as he can in a chaotic fashion, engaging his digestion at full tilt, in the person who undertakes everything placidly, whose physical functions may even show some sluggishness and do not call so much on the forces of the etheric body, the etheric body retains certain powers. The other person, by contrast, must use up all his etheric forces to sustain his physical functions. In consequence, the person who has quietened his body and reined in its appetites possesses excess forces in his etheric body, and the astral body mirrors this as powers of cognition, not merely bliss, so that such a person can perceive imaginative pictures of the astral world. Savonarola, for instance, had a physical body that did not much tax him. He was frail, even continually a little sick, having much in his ether body, that could not be used up by being directed into his physical body. He could therefore use these powers to access his mightily powerful thoughts and impulses, giving potent speeches which inspired his listeners. The visions he also had enabled him to present to his audience mighty prophetic pictures. And now we can apply this to the spiritual worlds. Just as inhibited activity is privation in Kamaloka, and privation is the Kamaloka state. When we enter Devakan, all suppressed activity falls away, because nothing remains there that is in any way connected with the physical plane or yearns back hungrily for physical things. Here we are given up to spiritual substantiality which gradually builds up the form of our next incarnation. Here is the purest, most uninhibited activity, which we experience as the purest bliss. In life we continually learn from everything that surrounds us. The bodies, though, which we have now, are ones we built up in accordance with the powers of our former incarnations. We have built them up through these powers. 
What we encounter and acquaint ourselves with in this life is not yet in our body. During our life we change. Our feelings and emotions change. Our ideals grow. A great sum of inhibited urge for activity sits in us, but we cannot transform our body. We have to make do with it as it was built up in line with the experiences of former incarnations. In Devakan we are liberated from these constraints, and in consequence our unconstrained urge for activity lives its life to the full in bliss. There we create our astral body, etheric body and physical body for the next life. What remains unused here on earth is integrated in Devakan. We bear with us up to Devakan not only our present modern consciousness but also what exceeds the scope of our personality. And this gives us an elevated existence there. In addition to the nature of our individuality here, we also experience in Devakan what we have acquired to enhance it, the accomplishments added to it, but we're not yet able to bring to expression during our lifetime. In this way we can understand all stages passing from the lowest level of pain and privation right up to bliss. In one world we can always trace the signs of what threads through all worlds. Today, therefore, we can also better evaluate the ascetic methods developed through history. Just as pain is connected with external injuries to the physical body, so a sense of bliss is connected with a decrease in outer and thus an enhancement of inner activity. This is the sensible aspect of old forms of asceticism, and we can understand why through renunciation people have sought a path leading up to higher worlds. Often we have to be clear about the most primitive aspects in order to grasp, in a sense, how spiritual science can explain the path leading from privation and renunciation to bliss through something as simple as a finger injury. And likewise, a bearing bodily pain can become a kind of path of knowledge. Everything is semblance and resemblance. And if we explain the small thing we see in front of us as spiritual science reveals it to be, we gradually elevate ourselves to a spiritual height that will enable us to understand the loftiest things. If we compare this with what we spoke of yesterday, we can see why bearing bodily pain can be a kind of schooling, a path of knowledge. Think of a person who has never had a headache. He might say that he is unaware of having a brain since he has never felt it. And then let us consider that such a headache does not come about due to external influences, but arises at a certain stage of Christian initiation, referring, referred to as the crowning with thorns. Here a person has the sense that whatever sufferings, pain and constraints approach him, seeking to undermine what is most important to him, his mission, he will stand upright even if he has to bear it alone. If someone were to practice cultivating these feelings for months, indeed for years, he would ultimately arrive at the feeling of such a headache 
as if thorns were piercing his head. This is a transition toward perceiving the esoteric forces that formed the brain. When the brain's etheric forces do precisely what they must, they find nothing that could bring these forces to our awareness. But the moment the physical brain is, in a sense, wounded under the influence of these feelings, the etheric body must detach itself, must withdraw from the brain, is driven out of it. And this independence of the etheric head leads to knowledge and insight. This transitory pain is only a transition toward attaining powers of cognition, involving nothing other than objectivizing what we did not previously know. A person may not previously have known that he had a brain, but now he learns to perceive the etheric forces and their activity, which have built up and sustain his brain. There are various other things that could be said. When a physical organ is separated from its etheric element so that the latter cannot intervene, we feel pain. Once the astral body is accustomed itself to this, healing or scarring occurs as liberation of the etheric body. So that, in other words, not all the forces of the etheric body are used. Then the reverse occurs, a feeling of joy and bliss. The end of Lecture 5